You're listening to our Southside Baptist Church podcast. For more audio content, please refer to our website. This is baptistchurch.com. All right, y'all can have a seat. All right, just to start, I want to ask everybody to do something a little different. I need you to think about who your great-great-grandparent was. All right, Ladarius, you don't even know. Okay. Um, I want you to think about, it can be great-great-grandfather, great-great-grandmother, but I want you to think about who your great-great-grandparent was. Um, Just a show of hands, who knows? Okay, I just want to point out also, this is... So it would be my father's father is my grandfather. His father is my great-grandfather. And his father is my great-great-grandfather. Does anybody know? You can just raise your hand. Alan knows. Debbie knows. The rest of you should be ashamed of yourselves. You're letting your entire family down. Just curious, who's, Dad, do you know my great-great-grandfather? Who would that be? Okay. Well, my great-great-grandfather was a murderer. (laughs) Um, You know, it's really difficult if we talk about, if we talk about who our great-great-grandfather was, I think we're talking about a few generations, and if I were to ask you to prove that they existed, how difficult would that be? Well, for y'all, it'd be almost impossible. You don't even know their names, but Even if you had known their name, how difficult would it be for you to prove that they actually existed? And then if I took it a step farther and said, hey, I want you to prove to me that they did this, like, and I gave them an act that they allegedly did, and you have to prove to me that they actually did something specific in their lifetime. Think about how difficult that would be. I mean, it's not difficult for me because mine apparently is going to be in the federal prison record. But when we start talking about the resurrection of Jesus, we're talking about over 2,000 years ago. And think about the burden there is to try to prove... I hate this. How, how difficult it is to prove something that happened, we're talking about three or four generations ago with your great-great-grandparent, how difficult it would be to prove something over 2,000 years ago. Today, we have like digital means, like we have computer records, we've even people like Celia Tisdale archive things and make digital formats of old, old documents. We don't even have that when we go back over 2,000 years ago. And so I was tasked with trying to create uh, a legal perspective on the resurrection of Jesus, and I think that it's a, it's a difficult one to do. I'm not ready for it, but we're going to try anyway um, and make this happen. Um, just so you know, I was trying just to, uh, we were talking about the power of the internet. We had someone uh, in the legal work I do, the very limited legal work I do, old man dies, families probating the estate when they find out that his retirement account is going to some woman he met on Facebook. And he's in his like 70s or 80s and she's like in her early 20s in a bikini in front of some pool in Spain. And so the argument was is that she doesn't even exist as a legal person. Um, So the court needs to just award that retirement account to the family. So I googled how to know if someone really exists. 
and I opened up this metaphysical question of how do we know that any of us exist? And so after several hours of reading, I determined that I do indeed exist, but it does let us know how difficult it would be to go back and prove that Jesus not only existed, but that he was murdered, that he was buried, and that he was resurrected. So I think it's a tall task. In the legal system, we have what we call the burden of proof. And in criminal cases, it's a reason, beyond a reasonable doubt. So in criminal cases, if you were accused of murder, the prosecution has the burden. They have to prove that you committed murder. And they have to prove it so thoroughly that the jury of your peers all say that they don't have any reasonable doubt that it was you, right? So it's a virtual certainty that this person committed the crime. Civil matters, it is preponderance of the evidence. 50% of you believes they did it, plus 0.001%. That will get you a conviction. They usually say 50% 50 plus a feather. So this this reasonable doubt standard is really high in criminal cases. And so I thought we would title this sermon, Resurrected Beyond a Reasonable Doubt. And the more I got prepared and saw how much there would be to do and how little prepared I could actually ever be, I want to be like, resurrected beyond preponderance of the evidence. No, I'm joking. Um, We're going to stick with it. Resurrected beyond a reasonable doubt. Our verse tells us why it's important that Jesus was resurrected. Every once in a while, you're going to meet a hippie Christian that says, I just, I know that God exists. God's working in my life. It doesn't even matter. If they found Jesus' body tomorrow, I would be okay. And it's like... How do you mean that? One way that you could mean that is that you wouldn't believe them because your interaction with God's been so legit. But if you mean that if they actually prove that Jesus is still dead, that you still have hope in Jesus, then you're just crazy. And I don't think you're even a Christian. Like your Christianity wasn't built on the resurrection of Christ. And it goes against Paul's language here in 1 Corinthians. So at trial, one of the things we do, we would have pre-trial motions and TV shows and movies never really show this part, but it's all the attorneys trying to keep stuff out at trial and determine what's going to be presented at trial. We're going to skip over that too, and we're going to jump right into the beginning of trial. We've chosen our jury. You're going to be the jury, and we're going to start with our opening argument. So we'll have opening argument, trial, closing argument. I don't have any witnesses to bring or evidence to produce besides what I'm going to tell you, so we're just going to go with opening and closing arguments. And so if I was going to do an opening argument, this is how I would approach it. Thank you all for your service today. I probably wouldn't even say that. Um, But if I were going to ask any of you, do you know who Jesus Christ is? Everybody in this jury box is going to say that they understand who Jesus Christ is. And even if you grew up in church or never went to church, even if you had no religious training whatsoever, you know who Jesus Christ is. So the question is, how do you know that name? For a poor Jew that lived over 2,000 years ago, had no political power, had no economic prowess whatsoever, had no institution that really took him in and he was able to use that institution to further his name, how do all of us know the name of Jesus Christ over 2,000 years after he existed? A poor man. We know that he grew up in a poor family because we know that Mary and Joseph, according to the Gospels, they brought up like poor po folks offering whenever they came to temple. So we know that they actually, by Levitical law, were able to bring a lower sacrifice because they were poorer. 
We know that he wasn't anything recognized in like the Sanhedrin and the Pharisees. They don't like Jesus, so he doesn't have any of that institution. He has no political power with the Roman Empire Empire because they eventually crucify him. There's no other reason that we should know this name. We know that he lived a blue-collar life when he's 30 years old. He commits his life to ministry at that point. He's baptized by his cousin. And let's just quickly point out that at Jesus' birth, there's just a few stories about this baby. But those stories aren't that well-known. It's just a few people that have high hopes for Jesus. His mom, and some of you are lucky enough to have a mom that has high hopes for you. His dad, stepdad, half-dad, had high hopes for Jesus. Um, There were a few people that prophesied around the time of his birth. They seemed to have high hopes. But other than that, nobody's looking for Jesus to do anything that spectacular. He comes from nothing, and he likely will live a normal, average life, die, and go away. But at 30 years old, he's baptized by John the Baptist. And at that point, he enters ministry. He starts with nobody, nothing, no building, nothing to his name. The Bible said there's nothing that great about him that you'd look at him and be attracted to him. But Jesus builds a following. As a poor man, he builds a following off of two things we see in the, in the Gospels. One, it says that he preaches or he speaks with authority. And so the idea was is that he, was, he knew the scriptures like most Jewish men did at his day. He knew the scriptures, but he knew God's interpretation and meaning of the scriptures. So when he spoke them, there was power and people were like, whoa, this guy speaks with authority. So he speaks with such authority that people are drawn to him, follow him, listen to him. The other thing that he does that draws a crowd is he produces miraculous acts. You can bring sick people to him, you can bring dead people to him, and Jesus will heal and he will bring life every, like, over and over again throughout the Gospels. We see that. It's also one of the only logical explanations of why Jesus was able to draw a crowd. Those two things would draw a crowd. So with that said, he, he draws a crowd. And there are times where the crowd gets big. It gets up to like, some say 20,000 people are fed when Jesus breaks uh, bread and prays over it. And all these people are fed because it was just, they counted the men in the gospel and they had their families there with them. A lot of people that were hungry got to eat that day because of a miraculous act of Jesus. But what we know from the gospels is, is that Jesus actually has a following of around, there's 12 dudes, 12 guys. Those are his guys, his disciples. And then beyond that, there's another 60 to, seven that, 60 to 70 that follow Jesus and kind of are part of his like entourage. Wherever he goes, they go. So how does a poor guy make it with just 12 committed guys and 60 to, seven people that, 60 to 70 people that follow him wherever he goes? How do all of us know the name of Jesus? And I would argue, and I think what the evidence is going to show... And what modern-day experts are going to say and past experts are going to say, we've all heard the name of this poor Jewish man with no political power, no economic prowess, no institution that he can use for his message, no reputation. We all know him because he did something that no one else has ever been able to do, and it reverberated throughout history. And a lot of people have claimed to do miraculous acts. And some people, we would argue with the help of demons, have been able to do it, but we don't know their names today. So I'm going to tell you that you're going to hear from the experts in this case. We're going to listen for Josephus, who was a Jewish historian that worked with Rome. 
We're going to listen to a Roman senator and historian, Tacitus. We're going to hear from a Roman governor who mentions Jesus and his Christians in a letter to the emperor of the day. His name was Pliny the Younger. We're going to hear from an atheist New Testament scholar, Greg Ludeman, or Gerd Ludeman, I don't know how to say it, it's German. He taught at Vanderbilt University. He said that historically it's indisputable that Jesus was dead. We'll just throw that out there. You're going to hear from the Medical Journal of the American Medical Association. You're going to hear from the British New Testament scholar James D.D. John, D.G. Dunn, who had a Ph.D. from Cambridge. We're going to look at the Roman Digesta, which was a collection of Roman law at the time that's going to tell us that crucified victims were and could be buried. We're also going to look at some of the archaeological evidence that buried crucified victims have been found. The evidence is going to point to the resurrection as the only reasonable choice in why Jesus' body was never produced. It's the only logical reason that we didn't have the body of Jesus. Now, as we move into the trial phase, there's some issues that we have to overcome. There are things that have to be addressed. First, and I pulled a lot from Lee Strobel. Many of you know it. It's the Case for Christ guy. In the 90s, he works for a Chicago newspaper. He's an award-winning investigative journalist and an atheist. And he says he lives his whole life just for pleasure. He's married at the time and has a, a young child when his wife becomes a Christian, which in his words was like an atheist's worst nightmare. And so he's thinking, like, what am I going to do? How am I going to live with this person? Should I just go ahead and get divorced? Um, and as he's thinking through that, he says, you know what I'll do? I'm a journalist. I'm really good at what I do. I'm just going to disprove Christianity, win her back over. Everything will be okay. And so for just under two years, this journalist goes and starts digging into the resurrection of Jesus, but the life of Jesus, all as a skeptic seeking to undermine it. Well, I think it's a year and nine months in, everything that he's looking for, and he's using all of his journalistic ethics to do it, he's using, you know, jur journalist curiosity as their best friend, their skepticism as their best friend, he's doing all of that, but at a year and nine months, he comes to the conclusion, there's no evidence that counters what I'm finding in the Gospels. And remember that when he approached the four Gospels, these were just propaganda from Christians. I'm not gonna, he didn't give them any credence whatsoever. He only viewed them as like a historical narrative at the time. And he goes through and he tries to find, and then he starts seeing some of the sources that we see, and he has to come to this conclusion that Jesus actually lived, that he actually was crucified, and he had to be resurrected. And so one of the things you'll see, if we go, in, if we don't Google your way around this, but try, you can investigate. It's just don't investigate with lazy Google searches. But if we were to go and look, we would see some of the accusations would be the early theory that we see in the Gospels is that the body was stolen by the followers of Jesus, that Jesus' followers snuck in and stole the body. Now, we do have to ask ourselves, why? Like, why would they do that? Does somebody want to venture a guess? Make it, but why would they want it to look like he was resurrected? What, John? Why would they want to create the narrative? To show that they were right? Um, 
you know, no one was really looking. <laughs> this wasn't some huge deal. They're like, hey, I got to make sure I'm right here, so let's go and steal a dead body. In life in general, if you're ever thinking you need to go steal a dead body, it's never a good idea. Don't do it. Um, I, I think that we would look for all the normal motives, like money, power, authority, um, and tangentially being right. But none of them got any of that. Like the money and authority, like they are beaten, they are whipped, they are shipwrecked, they are battered, they are prosecuted, and the majority of the disciples will die. I think at C.S. Lewis it said, like, somebody will die for a lie, but they won't die for a lie that they know to be a lie. And so whenever we look at the disciples, like the, the stolen body theory, I don't know that it works with the disciples because they only got heartache from it. It also goes counter to what we see in the scripture. That when we look inside, when we look at the scriptures and what it tells us, and let's just talk about the gospels really quickly. Even if someone doesn't accept the scripture as being inerrant, they can't deny that it's historic. That they can't deny that it has historic value. And so if we go back to your great-great-grandmother's example, your great-great-grandfather, and you're like, hey, Leisure, I found, I found a journal from my great-grandmother, and it's about my great-great-grandmother. And I'm like, is it a peer-reviewed journal? Um, and I go through and I look and I'm like, hey, you know what? Your great-great-grandmother did not support women's suffrage. She didn't believe women had the right to vote. So I'm not going to listen to anything else she says. Does, that, does her opinion on women's suffrage have anything to do with the hist historicity of her journal? No. And over and over again, we see like the, the different slights that we find against the four Gospels are they just don't want to believe that it's God-inspired. They don't want to believe that it's an error. They really want to just cast it as being propaganda. This is like Christian pop propaganda. Well, I would argue if they wanted to make Christian propaganda, they could have done a lot better job. Because what the Gospels tell us is this, that after the death of Jesus, people go back to their old life. We hear that the disciples go back to fishing. Like they didn't, like they had said, hey, okay, well, he died. I guess we'll just go back to Judaism the way it was before Jesus. And so they go back to fishing. They go back to some of their normal life. These weren't men that were like hatching a plan to go steal a body, to create a new religion. And remember, there's 11 of them. They've already lost one-twelfth of the following with Judas. So the stolen body theory, I don't think that it would work. The other reason that it won't work, because I don't think we have a motive, um, the other reason the stolen body theory doesn't work is the Jews at the time have all the power in their area, and the Romans. Between the Jews and the Romans, there's so much power leveraged against these, these 11 guys. They'll get the body. They'll torture them to find the body. Like, they're going to produce a body, and they don't. Like, they're going to find a way to get them to confess to a body. And I don't know about you guys, but I've told a few lies in my day. Um, eventually, when do we tell the truth? It's when the, the consequences of a lie are so great that we need the truth to get us out of them. And the disciples over and over again had that opportunity like they're beaten, they're imprisoned, they go through a lot of hardship, they live, they live impoverished lives for the rest of their lives for the sake of the gospel, the consequences of that lie would have been too great. And eventually they're threatened with death for it. The consequences of that lie would cause them to flip and tell the truth. And they never do. We never have it in a record. And so 
One of the things we have to look at is that the, the stolen body theory. Um, I would also point out that even if you don't accept the four Gospels as inerrant, the reason that you have to accept them as being historical is because we know the times that they were written in. Like we know that they were written at around this, this specific time. And so whenever, and also at the same time, historians of the day, if we're looking at Josephus, and people will say about Josephus, so if you go look, they're going to be like, the scandal of Flavius Josephus. The early church fathers snuck in, took an eraser, and added in this different language that described Jesus doing miracles. Once again, if early church leaders are doing that, they shouldn't have done it, but they also could have done a better job. Like, just go ahead and say he was resurrected. <laughs> they don't say that. Um, and then when I was looking, and what's funny is, is that you're looking through all of these secular sources, which feels dirty because they're all like out to disprove Christianity. And when you go and look at these secular sources, you find where these archaeologists find a new manuscript from Josephus. And it's written in Arabic, which means that it's likely not even, it wasn't considered by the early Christian fathers that were, actually, I guess, editing Josephus. And even this older manuscript that's written in Arabic, which Catholics didn't care for, it references Jesus Christ having existed and having a following. Like, it references Jesus. And so the best that they've got with Josephus, that they're trying to erase the existence of Jesus, is that, hey, you know, some guys edited Josephus' writings. But did they go and find every version of his manuscript, every version of his document, and edit it all? No, they didn't. There, was, there, are, there were those that slipped past the early church, if that's true, and they still reference Jesus. So if you're in this debate and somebody's like, well, Josephus, you can't trust anything that you read from him because it was edited by early church elders, then be like, what about the Arabic manuscript that was found by archaeologists later that predates that one, the one that you're referring to? That, well, they probably got to that too. Like, okay. Um... But so however we look at it, we've got Josephus, we've got Tacitus, we've got, I don't know how to say the guy's name. I say Pliny because that's our English phonetics. Pliny the Younger writing to early, um, to writing to the emperor of Rome at the time. All of these different people recognize Jesus Christ as being a historical figure. And you know what? I bet more of them recognize Jesus Christ as being a historical figure than know then people could document that your great-grandparent ever lived. Because everything you give me, I'm going to be able to go, to go after it. And if we go and rewind 200 years ago, none of us will be able to prove that our great-grandparents existed. Unless you like went to a grave and were like, here! <laughs> and then they're like, that's not your great-grandmother, I don't believe you. Um, another thing, whenever we talk about just the, the historicity of the Gospels and of the New Testament, we acknowledge that they were written around this time. We acknowledge that these were people that had experienced Jesus. And then there's all these little tangential things that come off of it that you're like, the Bible doesn't say that. So one of them was that there weren't synagogues in these different cities. And so, you know, whenever Jesus goes into a city, he, one of the first places he goes to is a synagogue. Everybody's like, hey, those didn't exist. Those small town Jews didn't have the money and they didn't have the incentive to even build a synagogue. And so they, they're a week's journey from Jerusalem. If they need to go provide a sacrifice every once in a while, they can just travel there. 
And then the Christian apologist is like, hey, you know what? There may not have been synagogues, or maybe they were just houses, like house synagogues, like our house churches of today. Maybe there were synagogues, but they just called it a synagogue, and it was just someone's house. Or maybe it was an invisible synagogue where they just pretended there was a synagogue around them. Everybody comes up with these different explanations of why there were no synagogues. Until... There's a Smithsonian article that's documenting um, archaeologists working. I think it's in Capernaum. Whatever it is. I, wait, I think I have it. Oh, this is work. Yeah, okay, good. All right, so modern archaeologists working. How, um, it's talking about the city where they're doing the dig site. They were, they were less interested in proving the Bible than in uncovering facts and context absent from the text. Like what religion did ordinary people practice? How did Galileans respond to the arrival of Greek culture and Roman rule? These are not Christianity Today archaeologists. Um, what did they eat? That's the questions they have. The Gospels themselves provide only glancing answers, but the purpose of the Gospels in this article is spiritual inspiration and not historical documentation. As for actual first-hand accounts of, for Galilean life in the first century, only one survives, written by our guy, Jewish military commander Josephus. And whenever they lay it out and they actually go in and they, they hit rock, they can find that this synagogue is in Mary Magdalene's hometown. And when they start digging it out, it'll hold 200 people. And it's got a stone table built up in the middle of it. And it's got like chariots of fire and different... Um, symbols of the Jewish faith and here we are something nobody said would be there except the New Testament um, we find it and we dig it up and we're able to archive it and show that there were synagogues in small Jewish communities across the areas of Jesus's ministry that happened in 2016 the article I read I think was in 2016 in 2015 if I'm saying that I'm at a disadvantage because somebody gets to tell me hey there are no synagogues and what do I have except for my belief in the historicity of the Gospels? Sometimes it just takes time for archaeology and science to catch up with what the Bible actually says. And we hear that on a Sunday and you're like, oh, brother, this is another non-scholastic person telling me that there's going to be science is going to catch up to faith. But here's a documented article in the Smithsonian that that was exactly what happened. And for that one, we could probably go find dozens of others where it took time for science to catch up with the New Testament. So when somebody wants to beat up the New Testament and not accept it as historical fact, just go look up some of the archaeological discoveries that support the New Testament and undermine current understanding at the time where the New Testament turned out to be right. So the other explanations, you know, we've got stolen body, we've got hallucinations, and so it's this idea of like somebody that doesn't want to be confrontational. Hey, listen, I know you believe that they believe that they saw that. And maybe they did hallucinate. They were all in that room. It got hot and stuffy. And next thing you know, Jesus walked in and they had a group hallucination. And one of the better points I saw from a skeptic was if we're going to believe that all of these guys had the same hallucination, like it sounds absurd, right? A good question I saw from a skeptic was, in the Crusades, Crusaders would have dreams supporting what they were doing. Now, the Crusades, we all know, a mistake, more political than religious, but it was given the face of religious so that they could have political power in doing it. Um, but these Crusaders that are going on a flawed mission have visions from God 
and dreams from God that support what they were doing in that mission. It's like, what are you going to do with that? A, a really good response that I heard was, once again, we all have dreams supporting what we want. It's why when ladies, young ladies, Camille, looking at you, when you're thinking about that guy that you got a crush on, you dream about him proposing to you every once in a while, or you get flowers. Um, we dream about the things that we want, right? So if you're in a crusade where you're maybe conflicted or you're thinking about it, your brain maybe gives you those hallucinations. But let's just contrast that with the disciples of Jesus. Once again, they weren't on a crusade. They weren't on a mission. When Jesus died and went in the tomb and we see that happen, we see the disciples actually step away and go back to fishing. These weren't people that were wanting it to be true. These were people that were moving on with their life. And they were moving on their life in such an extent. On the road to Emmaus, two disciples are there. And they're telling Jesus, yeah, Jesus is dead. They had to be convinced. Something happened that convinced these guys to turn around. These aren't crusaders on a mission that they want to be true and justify in their mind. These are people that are turning away from it, walking away from everything Jesus had taught, maybe going to take some good moral principles from it, but not going to change their life otherwise until something happened in their life that changed it where I'm going to go back and I'm going to be willing to die for this. I'm going to give up all the economy I have because I have a pretty good fish, fishing business. I'm going to turn that down the second time and I'm going to follow a resurrected Jesus. These aren't the crusaders wanting something to be true. These were people that were being objective, going back to their Jewish faith. And now something's changing it like in a crazy way to where they'll die for it. They're going to live the rest of their life for it. One of the big things too... And it's the reason that I think most scholars agree that resurre the resurrected Jesus is really one of the only logical explanations for what happened. Was because if Jesus was, if his dead body was existing, don't you know that every political party, like if it's the Jews of the time or whether it's the Romans, that they would just go produce the body? If there was a body of Jesus to be produced, they would have found it, they would have exposed it. And so all they have to do is produce the body. And there's no record of that ever happening. It would have just quashed it right there. We never would have heard of Christianity. We all would be sinners, more sinful than we otherwise are. All they have to do is produce the body and they don't. And so if we were in a criminal case right now, and I would say all the other side has to do, if they're saying that Jesus wasn't resurrected, all they have to do is produce the body. Then you would be like, okay, hey, you're getting, some, you're getting rid of some of my reasonable doubt right now. Well, what if Jesus was buried in a mass grave? What if Jesus was, his body was just dumped in a trash heap? They would have found a way to produce that body. Even if it was the skeletal remains when the third day, and there's this rumor going around that this guy rose from the grave, everybody's going hunting for that body and dragging his butt out of there and saying, hey, this is Jesus. Doesn't exist. They can't do it. Which is why they have to come up with a different story. The Gospels tell us that it comes up with, hey, you know what? Disciples stole the body. That is the cover story of why they can't produce the body. And of course, they can't get that information to the disciples. So whatever, we live the rest of our existence now with Jesus' body missing according to the other side. One thing I want to point out too, beyond having to create a different narrative, 
If we're going to talk about propaganda, propaganda takes money and it takes power. I can only do limited propaganda in my circles, especially because I don't do Facebook, so my propaganda is just me telling people lies if I was to do propaganda. But what we see like with Russia and even like there's good propaganda, Ukraine's done some with the, with the war there, um, it takes political influence and power to be able to spread propaganda. And if this is something that we're going to argue, this is just propaganda, we're like, okay, well, what mechanism did they use to, to produce such widespread propaganda? And I'm like, 12 blue-collar workers, or, I mean, 11 blue-collar workers saying that this happened. 60 to 70 people that say that they saw this. The Bible tells us that over 500 people saw that Jesus was resurrected. And so at that point, it starts to trickle out. This is like a genuine movement that's happening. It's not propaganda. Propaganda wasn't in their capacity at that time. We see that they don't have the motive. And I think one thing we've got to be careful about, and what we're really bad about in our culture, we just assume that everybody that came before us was so stupid. You know, I wish that our great-great-grandparents could be as smart as the people in this room. I wish they could have the mind of Jalen. I wish that they could have the brain power. I got nobody else to pick on. <laughs> we think that everybody before us was really stupid. And so I think that we need to remind ourselves of something here. We're not the first people to have this discussion. And a lot of the beliefs that we have right now on the Christian faith have been cultivated through centuries of really smart people talking about it. And you're like, Ugh, what really smart people? Some dysfunctional bishop of the Catholic Church? <laughs> um, I think we forget that Oxford, Harvard, all of our Ivy League schools of today, you know what they started as? Seminaries. They started as seminaries. And so you're like, oh, this is some Bible college flunky that's trying to tell me this. I'm not. Um, but the Harvard and Oxford universities, we would say they bring the best minds across the planet. They bring some of the best minds there. That, did, that was no different 500 years ago. I don't know when they existed. So however long ago that they existed, it was no different then. Oxford universities always brought the brightest minds together. And when they're hashing out some of these issues of the resurrection, they were actually working with better evidence than we were working with. If you're just talking about being close to the time that it happened. And now we have archaeological evidence that they didn't have. But don't think that your little blog search that finds somebody that lists this thing about Jesus or undermines the faith in this way, that they're going to undo hundreds, like they're going to undo centuries of discussion and debate and research that's happened up until this point. Don't fool yourself into thinking that we are smarter than the people that preceded us. It's likely that if I dropped them in any of our shoes, they would be a lot better off than we were. We are. Don't make that mistake. The other thing is like the idea, and I know we're jumping around a bit. I just want to make sure we get this in there. Um, this is just a cult. This was a cult from people that wanted power and authority, and that's what happened. Um, one of the things we could ask is, what kind of cult has this type of historical documentation and what kind of cult sweeps over the globe? And you're not going to be able to say many of them. And you might point to other religions, so let's just take a second to look at other religions. We'll start with Buddhism. 
Um, if we're going to look at just the historicity and historical documentation of Buddhism, um, one of the articles I was reading, Buddhist studies in Japan yielding surprising, surprising historical results. One historical example drawn from the 19th century Japanese Buddhist may be helpful. The University of Chicago historian James Ketelar points out that various dates for Buddha's birth differed from each other. Well, like, how much did they differ, Ledger? Like, I mean, maybe Jesus was born three years earlier. We don't know. Well, they differed for more than 2,000 years. So, let me ask you, who was your great, 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 2,000 years? Noting that this compares to... But noting that this compares to stating that Jesus was born sometime between Socrates and Descartes. We don't, know, we don't have to know that, whatever. Buddha's historical existence is crucial for Buddhists because their faith was built on the historical Buddhas actually having achieved enlightenment. And so when we look at this and we see these contradictions, it creates a real issue. If we don't even know when Buddha was born, how do we know when he reached enlightenment? And how can we show that he did? Buddhist scholar Edward Kahn's raises another issue. Many of Buddha's major writings date, this is Buddha's writings, which I don't hear a bunch of like picking on Buddhists, but whatever. His writings date from 600 to 900 years after his death, with oral teachings being the, for, the norm for the first 500 years. And so in other words, when we talk about Buddha's original teachings, they must be among the ones we, yeah, one of the issues they have was even the writings that they have from Buddha, they don't know which are Buddhas and which are some of his followers. So they can't even tell which ones are authentic documents and which ones are later, were later added. Khans, our Buddhist scholar, concedes that that's why the Buddhists cannot compete with Christians regarding the reliability of their traditions. If we're going to look at the Hindu faith, so just so you know, the most popular character in the Hindu faith is Krishna. And it's significant, according to one report, even most Hindu scholars doubt whether or not Krishna actually lived. Krishna, who was believed to have first delivered the text, I don't know how to say this, but I'm going to go for it, Bhagavad Gita, to the sun god some hundreds of millions of years ago. Nobody knows if he even actually existed. Also, none of, the addition, none of the actual Hindu texts can be accurately dated prior to, wait for it, the 12th century. On the date that Krishna actually lived and spoke with his, his first disciple, Arjuna, approximately 3000 BC, the earliest copy which we have today dates for some 4,100 years later. When was the last time you heard people going after a Hindu's belief system and their historicity? If we're talking about Islam, a leading Muslim apologist, the late Ahmed Didat, summarized the, the typical Christian response to the Muslim objection, how could a man 1,000 miles away and writing a full 600 years after the crucifixion know what happened to Jesus? This is the, the, the view of the Muslim towards Christianity. Didat's reply to this critique is surprising. The Christian plea is valid. Their logic is good. We can go through a lot of different religions and try to pick apart where they're at. And we'll look and see where Christians and Judaism, Christianity and Judaism are subpar above every other religion as far as the historical validity of what we believe. And so whenever somebody comes after you, 
and says, hey, well, well, I mean, I don't believe this about the Bible. I don't believe that it's inerrant. You can say, okay. But you can't deny that it's historical. And you don't, can't deny that it has historical value. Um, i sure we had everything. When we got into trial, we would put on our experts. Um, we would put in some of the testimony, the evidence that we had. And then we would move to closing arguments. Closing arguments are where we're going to hit the high points of our case, where we're going to drive in some of our arguments so that the last thing the jury's thinking about are the valid points that we made and the answers that we had to the other side. And so let's go for it and talk about what our closing arguments would be. Let's turn to Luke 5, 17 through 26. Luke 5, 17 to 26. All right, verse 17. So Jesus is, is here. One day he was teaching, and there were some Pharisees and teachers of the law sitting there who had come from every village of Galilee and Judea and from Jerusalem. And this is, I never noticed this until this past week. And the power of the Lord was present for him to perform healing. All right, so we know that Jesus is in healing mode. Verse 18, and some men were carrying on a bed a man who was paralyzed, and they were trying to bring him in and to set him down in front of him. But not finding any way to bring him in because of the crowd, they went up on the roof and let him down through the tiles with his stretcher into the middle of the crowd in front of Jesus. Seeing their faith, he said, friend, your sins are forgiven you. The scribes and the Pharisees began to reason, saying, who is this man who, can, who speaks blasphemies? Who can forgive sins but God alone? But Jesus, aware of their reasonings, answered and said to them, why are you reasoning in your hearts? Which is easier to say, your sins have been forgiven you, or to say, get up and walk? But so that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the paralytic, I say to you, get up and pick up your stretcher and go home. Immediately he got up before them and picked up what he had been lying on and went home glorifying God. And now check it out. They were all struck with astonishment and began glorifying God. And they were filled with fear saying, we have seen remarkable things today. For our closing, I think we need to remember this. All of us know the name of Jesus Majority of the world has heard of Jesus Christ. All of us know it because he did something so spectacular that it still resonates to this day. And I would argue that not only did the disciples see a resurrected Jesus, but we've had such interactions with that resurrected Jesus that it's changed our lives as Christians to be able to move forward and preach the gospel and live a life according to Christianity. One of the things that we see here is that these scholars are all sitting around in this house with Jesus teaching. And they're listening to all the stuff that he's saying and then crumbs start coming from the ceiling and this man gets lowered in front of him. And Jesus forgives his sins and then to show that he has the power to forgive sins, he tells them to get up and walk and heals them right in front of the skeptics. And if y'all, we forget that they were there and it tells us that they were all struck with astonishment and they began glorifying God. 
and they were filled with fear. But this is what they say. They don't say, I want to follow him. What they say is, we've seen some remarkable things today. And a lot of times we end up like that. And young folk for sure end up like that. Like life's got to beat them up and bring them where they'll actually honor and worship Jesus. But what happens is we see amazing things of God. We see miracles of God. We see changed lives. We see things happen. And then we quickly, like, hey, I just saw a remarkable thing. I'm going to go live my life. So the danger of this argument is that you're going to end up in these debates. And I would argue that all of us need to be able to be prepared to give a response if someone wants to attack the credibility of the resurrection of Jesus. But you're going to end up in a debate where even if you won, and that's what we have. Like you see these, a lot of these Christian apologetic guys, whenever they, they can win a debate, but they won't win the person. Because for them to actually win the person, this person has to believe and then commit to Jesus Christ. And so scholars, y'all, largely just kind of accept the resurrection of Jesus Christ. You don't find that many people arguing against it in academic settings anymore. They just kind of, hey, you know what? We couldn't win it. We're done with it. Let's move on from it and just talk about other things. They, they, didn't not, they didn't lose the argument and then choose to follow Jesus because that would have been too heavy. And I'll just argue this. For some of us, you know what? We actually believe, but we haven't committed our way to Jesus Christ. Like we actually, we believe. We see Jesus working in people's lives around us. We feel God stir up our heart when we hear the scriptures preached. We feel moved in worship to worship Jesus but for whatever reason, we, don't commit our, we have not committed our life to him. And that's not a Christian. But the truth is, if you don't walk with God, if you aren't living for Jesus, then maybe it's because you've never actually committed your way to Jesus. And so if you're here today and you say, you know what, I, I believe. Like, I genuinely believe. Well, the Bible says even the demons believe. You've got to believe and then you've got to follow. You've got to actually follow Jesus. And so if you're here today and you're looking, you say, wait a second, I, 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 I don't have any doubt that what he said was true. But when I look at my life, it looks like it, I don't know that. It looks like I don't believe. So that for this jury, if you're going to say that you believe all of these different things, that Jesus has done all of that, and then you feel God stirring up in your heart to make a decision and follow Jesus, respond to him. Don't ignore it. Respond to God when he stirs up your heart. Because every time you don't, you're just putting a layer on that makes it that much harder for you the next time. In closing, well, we, had our, we had a mission trip to England years ago. And there was a pit bull, which are outlawed in England. And so I love pit bulls, and I'm sitting there playing with it while it's trying to eat my hand. And um, this girl comes out, and she's like, what, do you, what are y'all doing? And then we're Americans, so we start up a conversation. We try to talk to her about Jesus. And she's like, hey, I got my boyfriend on the phone. I want you to talk to my boyfriend. So I was like, all right. I pick up the phone. And it was really cute because he's like, it's all just fairy tales. Everything you say is fairy tales. Um, by the end of it, because I'd watched a few apologetic videos, he was actually opening, like, opening up to talk about these things. And I couldn't close, like, we couldn't close a deal on the phone. It's like, hey, just repeat after me. Um, he wasn't there yet, but he was so close. Um, and God had moved his mind and then his, and moved his heart. And 
the way I left it with him is the way I'll leave it with some of you. Um, just look. You investigate it. Don't be lazy. Don't go to atheist.com and just read a bunch of posts. Now, you might find your way there, and I don't even know that's a legit website, so be careful. But investigate for yourself. Look at the historical data to see what you'll find. Lee Strobel says that beyond, beyond the Gospels, there's still five additional historical um, views that point to Jesus actually existing and being crucified, and then the illogical explanations of the resurrection. Like over and over again, we see this narrative supported. We've already gone through some of the holes in other world religions, but you don't see them ever attacked. And I think it's because what we believe is the actual truth. And there's a whole world out there that's waging war on you hearing the truth and responding to it. All right, so let's stand up. If you're here today, and let's just close our eyes, bow our heads. If you're here today and you, you're saying, hey, I get that, I believe that, but my life doesn't reflect that, and you feel God stirring up your heart, then I just ask that you respond to him. We're going to have people down here that are willing to pray with you. They're willing to talk to you about it. But if you're here and you feel God working on your heart, don't ignore it. If you're here and you know that you're a Christian but you haven't been living for it, let this stir up your heart to, do, to, to love and good deeds is what Hebrews tells us. So just pray with me. Jesus, Lord, uh, we hear these worship songs, God, and they mean a lot to us emotionally because, God, we know where we would be without you. Lord, the resurrection and the fact that you've been raising up men and women through these centuries to fight for its validity and to stand for that truth. And God, despite the countless attacks of atheists and scholars and different religions, it's still standing. And could it be, God, that it's, we know it's still standing, God, because it's true. And over and over again, God, you let science catch up to what you told us in Scripture. And so, Lord, for people that are here today, God, maybe we move their mind, but, God, only you can move a heart. And so, Lord, right now, God, I just pray for anybody that doesn't know you, Lord, that they would, Lord, that they would ask you to come into their heart and forgive them, or that you would make them a Christian, they would repent of their sin, and they would follow you the rest of their life. But, God, that doesn't happen unless you move the heart. So, Lord, I pray that you'll give people that knowledge, and, God, you'll help guide them through that with your Holy Spirit. Lord, if someone's a Christian today and they haven't been walking with you, and they know there's been times where they were, they know that you've shown yourself to them, God, I pray today will be a day that they just commit to you again, and, God, that they'll follow you. So, Lord, whatever you want to do in people's hearts today, God, I pray that you'll do it, and we'll just be open to it. In your name we pray. Amen.